0: morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 28. Genesis chapter 28. Last week, we talked about how before the twins, Jacob and Esau, were even born, God had revealed to Rebekah that Jacob, not Esau, was to inherit the covenant God made with Abraham. Since Isaac was so blinded, spiritually speaking, by his love for food and his favoritism toward his son Esau, Isaac planned to pass the blessing down to Esau instead of Jacob. Rebecca was not about to let that happen, so she took matters into her own hands and used her favorite son, Jacob, to deceive her her husband Isaac into passing the blessing down to Jacob. Her deception turned out to be a disaster, however, since Esau then hated Jacob and planned to kill him. Isaac and Rebekah, therefore, determined to send Jacob away from the land of Canaan to find a wife among the daughters of Rebekah's brother, Laban. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. Let's start reading in chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your, brother's, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner land god gave to abraham then isaac sent jacob on his way and he went to Aram to laban the son of bethuel the aramean the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of jacob and esau let's pray lord the sermon this morning gets pretty deep so i pray that you would grant understanding and some of it would be considered very controversial So I ask that you would give your people discernment. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. I think Isaac was publicly recognizing that he had been wrong and that Jacob was indeed the rightful inheritor of God's covenant with Abraham. Isaac and Rebekah then sent Jacob away to Paddan Aram, the general area where the town of Haran was located. And Haran, of course was where Rebekah's father Bethuel lived with her brother Laban. Bethuel was Abraham's nephew. In verses 3 and 4, Isaac reaffirms again, even more specifically, that the covenant God made with Abraham, which was passed down to Isaac, was now being passed down to Jacob. But we'll come back to this again later. In verses 6 and 7, Jacob had been sent back to Haran in Paddan Aram with the command not to marry a Canaanite woman, like the Hittite wives Esau had married. Verses 8 and 9 say, Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Now, there were Hittites living in Canaan, so instead of calling Esau's wives Hittites here, it just uses the more general term, Canaanite women. Now, it's hard to know what to make of this passage. After Jacob fled the country, I can't help wondering if Esau thought that if he married a daughter of Ishmael, who was in Abraham's extended family, maybe he could get the covenant blessing after all. If so, Esau was to be disappointed. The blessing would go to Jacob as God had said. Verses 10 to 12 put the focus back on Jacob again. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haram. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So Jacob set out on the 550 mile trip from Beersheba north to Haran, which would have taken over a month. Mike Liddell had not yet invented My Pillow, so Jacob slept with his head on a rock. He has a dream about a stairway reaching to heaven. The King James translates this ladder, which is possible, but I think stairway is more likely. In 1971, the band Led Zeppelin wrote what is regarded by many as one of the greatest rock hits of all time about a materialistic woman trying to buy a stairway to heaven. For thousands of years, people have tried to buy a stairway to heaven by being good enough or by accumulating enough riches and power to have heaven on earth. But the stairway to heaven in Genesis 28 is not about us reaching up to to heaven It is about God reaching down from heaven to us. Biblical scholars have spilled much ink speculating on the symbolic meaning of the stairway to heaven. Personally, I think what this means is that Jacob went to sleep and had a dream about a stairway reaching to heaven. If it has any symbolic meaning at all, it is probably that God himself is about to directly communicate with Jacob. What God communicates is That the covenant God gave to Abraham and Isaac is now being passed down to Jacob, who will later be known as Israel. But again, I'll come back to this later. In verses 16 and 17, Jacob woke up and thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob set the rock he had used as a pillow up on its end as a pillar and poured poured oil on it. He called that place Bethel. Now, the word Bethel in Hebrew literally means house of God. Bethel was located about 10 miles north of Jerusalem and should not be confused with the university in St. Paul. Jacob seems to be following the religious practices of the Canaanites in whose land he had been living the Canaanites would set up pillars of stone to worship. To pour oil on this stone was a means of dedication. Jacob doesn't know any better, and God doesn't condemn him for it. But later in the Bible, this practice of setting up pillars of worship will be condemned, and godly kings will be commanded to tear down such monuments of worship. But Jacob was not yet a believer or follower in Yahweh. But after this vision, he now realizes that God is real. Just knowing God exists is not biblical faith. So Jacob tries to make a deal with God in verses 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And, all, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. In the coming weeks, Jacob will go to Haran and be deceived by his uncle Laban. But in the midst of that hardship, he will experience amazing blessing from God. After the 20 years are up, Jacob will return to the land that God promised to give him. On the way there, God will again appear to Jacob and Jacob will accept Yahweh as his God. Now, This covenant that God made with Abraham that was passed down to Jacob was mentioned twice in this short chapter. Once it was affirmed to Jacob by Isaac, and the second time it was reaffirmed to Jacob, also known as Israel, by God himself. I want to spend some time this morning talking more about this covenant. This is going to get deep, so hang on to your thinking caps. In verses 3 and 4, just before Jacob was sent away to Haran, Isaac addresses his son Jacob saying, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of people. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Later, when Jacob was traveling to Haran, God himself appeared to Jacob in verses 13 to 15 and says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. That is the covenant God gave to Abraham. Both Isaac and God himself are now reaffirming that this covenant is being passed on to Jacob, also known as Israel. Now, I took a class on Genesis when I was in college and had a class on the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, when I was in seminary. But after, even after all of that, I couldn't figure out what Genesis was all about. Oh, I knew all the stories. I mean, Abraham and, or Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. But what was the point of this story? It was as plain as the nose on my face, and I just didn't see it. The book of Genesis is not just a family history of Israel, although it is that too. Genesis is about God's sovereign covenant or solemn promise to Abraham to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him to bless all nations of the world through him and to give him the land his, him and his descendants the land of Canaan as a permanent possession. This promise reappears throughout the whole book of Genesis. In chapters 12, and 13, 15, 16, 17, 21, 22, 24, 26, and now chapter 20 firm, or 28 reaffirms it again, twice. That covenant will be reaffirmed once again in chapter 48. Genesis is about how the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham have been passed down through Isaac to Jacob, who will later be called Israel. Even some of the chapters that don't specifically mention the covenant, like chapter 27 last week, are about how God protected his covenant from being derailed. So Genesis is about the family history of Abraham and Israel, but more specifically, it is about God's covenant with Abraham and how God protected and passed down that covenant to Isaac and then to Jacob, also known as Israel. And yet... God made it clear that this promise was not to all of Abraham's physical descendants. It was to go to Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob or Israel, not Esau. And in fact, later in the law of Moses and the prophets, it became clear that those Jews who unrepentantly rebelled against God and his, his law could be cut off from these covenant promises. So the promise is only applied to believing children of Jacob or Israel. That's why Paul teaches in Romans 9 that not all who are physically descended from Jacob or Israel are true Israel. It is only those of faith who will inherit the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham. And the interesting thing is that in the Old Testament, there are hints that even non-Jews could inherit these covenant promises by their association With Abraham or Israel. For example, even the Gentiles serving under Abraham were circumcised and adopted, so to speak, into Abraham's family and into the covenant promises God gave to Abraham. Later on, Rahab was not a Jew, and yet she was saved from destruction by her faith and became part of Israel. Ruth was a Moabitess, and yet she believed in the God of Abraham and became part of Israel. In Isaiah 42, 6, God says the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. But the means by which God would bless the nations or Gentiles was very specific. The promise was given to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, also known as Israel. Then Jacob, also known as Israel, told his son Judah that the scepter or right to rule would not depart from Judah's line until the coming of the one to whom it belonged. Now, I'm sure neither Jacob nor Judah fully understood this, but it would become clear later. Eventually, there was a family in the line of Judah, headed by a man named Jesse. God chose King David, David, the youngest son of Jesse's family, to be king. God, through the prophets and in the Psalms, then promised that someone from King David's line would rule over an eternal kingdom. This final eternal kingdom or Messiah would be a descendant of David and his first surviving son Solomon. The Messiah would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem to a virgin. He would eventually be led like a lamb to the slaughter, be executed with the wicked, buried with the rich. In the fullness of time, the Spirit of God would make it clear to Jesus that he was that one, that descendant of Judah and King David that, that the Jews had been expecting. And in the New Testament, the New Testament writers were convinced by Jesus' fulfilled prophecies, miracles, and resurrection, and they believed in him and proclaimed him as that promised Messiah to whom all scriptures pointed. So God's covenant promises to Abraham are primarily to believing Jews, which is why Paul said that the gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek or Gentile. But Jesus' final command was to make disciples of all nations or Gentiles. Paul used an olive tree illustration to teach that believing Gentiles are grafted into the covenant promises God gave to Abraham. It is in Christ that God will fulfill his promise to Israel, that all believing Gentiles of the world will be blessed. Now, this has led many scholars to conclude that while the Jews went that when the Jews rejected Christ, God rejected Israel. They believe that the covenant promises that God gave to Israel to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them and to give them the land of Canaan as eternal possession, all those covenant promises now go to, to the church instead of Israel. They point out that Paul himself called the church the Israel of God. These scholars insist, therefore, that the modern state of Israel has no more inheritance in the covenant promises of Abraham than Norway or Nigeria or Taiwan God is done with Israel they insist There are godly Christians who believe this but I agree with the many scholars who say they are wrong Follow along with me on the back of your bulletin The passage on the back of your bulletin comes from Romans 10 and 11 now I'm going to read I'm not going to read all of it this morning but I do want you to be able to see the context jump down to the parts in bold where it says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people. I don't know how Paul could possibly have been any more clear than that. God is not done with Israel or the Jews. But if you pointed this passage out to someone who believes that God is done with Israel, they are likely to say that Paul is talking about the church here, whom Paul calls the Israel of God. In other words, they would say that this passage says that God has not rejected his people, the church, but he has rejected Israel. This makes no sense at all. There is no suggestion anywhere in the New Testament that the church is being in danger of being rejected by God. Not only that, but look back up at verse 16. It says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Paul is talking here about Israelites or Jews who have not accepted the gospel. That's not about the church. The context is about unbelieving Jews. Verse 21 confirms this when it says, but concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is talking about unbelieving Israel. Paul is still talking about unbelieving Jews or Israel when he says in the very next verses, God did not reject his people Israel. The covenant promises that God will bless those who bless the Jews and curse those who curse the Jews is still valid today. And it applies to Israel. Now, many scholars who believe that God is not done with Israel yet believe that in verses 25 and 26, Paul is prophesying that one day the majority of Jews will finally come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and be saved. I think that is exactly what Paul is saying. Okay, so enough with the heavy theology. Let me just leave you with three practical applications or lessons. First, As a matter of public policy and international relations, I believe it is important that Christians oppose all forms of cursing Israel, like anti-Semitism, which seems to be increasing at a scary rate in America, or like the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, also known as the BDS movement, which is taking hold in our universities and even in Congress. The BDS movement seeks to punish Israel by boycotting goods from Israel by cutting off all support or interaction with Israeli companies, and by applying government sanctions to Israel. As Christians, we should oppose all those who curse Israel like this. We should stand by Israel and bless, and bless them with our support. Now, this doesn't mean Israel right or wrong, of course. Neither Jesus nor Paul nor the prophets would have agreed with Israel right or wrong. When the Israeli government commits injustices or sin, we should call them out on it just like the prophets did. But generally speaking, we should support politicians who stand with Israel and oppose those who stand against Israel. Second, Jacob promised that if God became his God, he would give a tenth of all that, gives, all that God gives him. Now, I know that many pastors insist that tithing is for today, especially since Jacob's tithe comes before the law of Moses. But under the law of Moses, the tithes were to go to the priests and the temple establishment. According to the book of Hebrews, however, all that was done away with by the new covenant. Beside that, Paul had abundant opportunity to assist on tithing when he wrote about giving. And yet he never did so. The New Testament ideal is to be generous. Giving a tenth of your income is a good benchmark, but some may not be able to give that much, and others should give more whatever you give be generous giving less than a tenth of your income is probably not generous now i hope all of you will support our church but whether you give to our church or to some worthy christian charity or even to a neighbor in need be generous finally in john chapter 1 jesus meets a man named nathaniel who says rabbi you are the son of god you are the king of israel Jesus responds by using the illustration of the angels ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder or stairway. Jesus tells Nathanael, You will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that, like that ladder or stairway, Jesus is the connection between the Father in heaven and people on earth. The Gospel of is clear, the Gospel of John is clear that it is God who is speaking through Jesus, and that no one comes to God but through Jesus. Jesus is like that ladder or stairway between God and people. Jesus is the only way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your people, the Jews, this morning. We pray that you would protect them from the terrorists in Gaza and their supporters in Iran. And from the anti-Semites around the world and in our own Congress and universities. And Lord, we pray that they would come to their Messiah, Jesus, as their one and only stairway to heaven. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.